Welcome to The Breach, your deep dive into authoritarianism and corruption in the era of Trump. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes to help inform more people about these critical issues. Consider it an act of resistance. My guest today is Yasha Monk. He's a lecturer on government at Harvard University, a columnist for Slate, and the host of the Good Fight podcast. His most recent guests are columnist Ann Applebaum and author George Packer. We'll post a link in the show notes. He's here today to talk about Trump and authoritarianism as a force in politics. In a recent Slate column, he argues that Trump is an authoritarian by instinct rather than ideology. Sasha, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. What drew you to the subject of authoritarianism? What drew me to it was just sort of, you know, an optimistic life outlook and wanting to focus on the beautiful things in life. Um, no, I mean, you know, I've been thinking and studying about how democracy works and how it's sustained in various parts of the world for a number of years. And so, you know, like a number of other people who have expertise in countries like Russia and Venezuela and so on, I found myself a little startled that uh, the things I've been thinking about for a while are suddenly relevant in places like the United States and parts of Europe, like Poland and Hungary. So, so partially it's an accident and, you know, partially perhaps it has biographical reasons in that, you know, my family um, is from various parts of Europe and kept being thrown out of whatever country they were in as they were always sort of in the wrong place at the wrong time. So perhaps I have a baseline instinct for the fragility of democracy when people who, you know, were born and raised in the United States where uh, the system had been functioning very well for 250 years. And can you give us a working definition of authoritarianism? You know, there's very different forms of authoritarianism. You know, I mean, any authoritarian system will have in common that there's either a person or a group of people who make the ultimate political decision as opposed to uh, some form uh, in which a people can can make those decisions. Um, so that can be a king, it can be a, a dictator, it can be a political party, it can be a theological council, like in Iran. But, but I think actually what's more important today is for people to understand what we mean by populism. Because populism is this term that we use all of the time, and it sort of, you know, is, is often applied a little indiscriminately. So, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a populist. Erdogan in Turkey is a populist. But perhaps Elizabeth Warren is too, I don't know, you know, people aren't sure. So, um, so I think it helps to actually get a sense of what makes a populist. And why it is, for example, that in my mind, Elizabeth Warren is not a populist. Um, and, and a populist is, is, is somebody who doesn't, they don't necessarily have the same political values. They don't necessarily share policy ideas. But they think that all of the problems in the political system come from an elite that is incompetent and corrupt and self-serving. And all it needs to solve the problems that they see, the ways in which they think the country is weak and its citizens aren't being looked after enough, is for somebody who is uniquely able to represent the people, and only the real people, not the minorities, not, you know, people with weird political views, you know, ordinary, real people, that's always part of the populist appeal. That person has to gain power, and they have to get into government, and, and they're going to solve everything. Everything is going to be simple. And of course, what they recognize quite quickly is that everything isn't simple, that they start running into all kinds of problems. And then they start blaming 
outsiders for that, they start blaming foreign powers for that, they start blaming independent institutions for that. And that's what populism is so dangerous, because the basic moral imaginary of populism very quickly devolves into attacks on anybody who isn't in favor of a populist, because by definition, they are not part of the real people. You've written that Donald Trump is more of an authoritarian by instinct than by ideology. What do you mean by that? So when you think of somebody like Viktor Orban in Hungary, um, like Lech Kaczynski in Poland, they are very ideological people who think very hard about what they dislike about the current political system and where they want to take their countries. Orban does this big speech every year at a sort of retreat of the intellectual party cadres. He just held that about a week ago. And he said at an early one, quite clearly, that he doesn't like liberal democracy. He wants to take Hungary in the direction of a hierarchical or illiberal democracy. He wants a more unified. He doesn't like the press being able to criticize various aspects of Hungary, criticize him. So it's a very explicit idea of where they want to go, what they want. Um, whereas when you look at someone like Donald Trump, I don't think that he had a clear idea on the day he got elected how he wanted to undermine civil liberties, how he wanted to, you know, abolish the independence of the FBI, how he wanted to close down newspapers and so on and so forth. But, but he definitely wanted to close our borders and do things that are pretty authoritarian that way. Well, I don't think that closing down borders is authoritarian, right? So we have to distinguish between things for which we have a strong sort of policy dispreference, right? I mean, I think that it's a very bad idea to build a wall on the Mexican border. I think it's a bad idea to make it more difficult for people to bring in family members, as Donald Trump is sort of suggesting now. But that doesn't go against the basic element of liberal democracy. But many things involved in actually constructing a wall would go against treaty obligations that we have and environmental laws. And he's just kind of announced by fiat that he's going to do it. He doesn't care about any of those things. Well, it depends on how you do it and so on, right? It's not clear to me to what extent that would be the case. But you can, you know, most treaty obligations, you can, can sort of give terms on um, and, and say that you want to get out of them and, and you might have penalties so or it might take a while. But, you know, there are countries in the world with very restrictive immigration policies like Australia that aren't authoritarian countries. I, I disagree with them on a number of policies, but I think it's clear that Australia is a liberal democracy, even though it has, you know, very restrictive immigration policies. So I do think it's important to distinguish between things that Trump is doing that are really bad, that we disagree with, but that are legitimately something that a politician in a liberal democracy can do. We just want to fight against it on political grounds, we want to win elections so that we put in place policies that we think are more just and, and, and more reasonable, more effective. And on the other hand, things like firing James Comey, things like potentially firing Robert Miller, the special investigator, things like attacking the freedom of a press, things like going to a ceremonial event for new recruits to the army and asking them to take political actions. Those are really undermining the very basics of liberal democracy. But Trump was campaigning to undermine the free press, even on the campaign trail, when he was saying things like, we're going to scale up the libel laws by implication scaling back the First Amendment. Yeah, so I think the press is one example where even in the campaign he had rhetoric that was quite extremely uh, anti-liberal. And, 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 and there was other ways in which that was the case as well. Right? I mean, he threatened to lock up Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, saying that you're going to put your main political adversary in jail on spurious grounds, is a hallmark on, of authoritarianism. I agree with that. 
But nevertheless, I think all of this is reactive, right? Even on the campaign trail, um, it's not that he has some worked out system whereby he wants a harmonious society where uh, the press isn't really free and doesn't criticize in the kind of way in which Orban might do it. But, you know, he would always say that on the campaign trail because yesterday the New York Times ran a mean story about him. And so then he was annoyed by it and he was going to be out on the campaign trail saying, you know, the failing, lying New York Times is telling me this and that. So with him, it's always react. And that's what I mean by his authoritarianism. He's not willing to accept any limits on his power in practice. So whenever he butts up against one of those limits, whenever Congress asserts, whenever the FBI asserts, and whenever newspapers do good work and investigative journalism, that draws his attention to some other form of independent power that he wants to abolish. And so over time, he's going to uh, wind up going in the same direction as Orban in Hungary or Kaczynski in Poland, but with less of a plan, with less of a vision. And do you find that more disconcerting or less disconcerting? I mean, I think I had the hope that it was less disconcerting because I think it has the potential of making him make mistakes and errors from his point of view, right? So, for example, when you think about Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court justice he nominated, again, he's somebody with whom I have strong disagreements on all kinds of uh, philosophical issues and all kinds of policies. I think Neil Gorsuch is going to be a very bad influence on this country, on the Supreme Court. But there's no indication that Gorsuch will simply rubber stamp a real power grab by Donald Trump. Now, people like Kaczynski in Poland and Orban in Hungary realize that one of the first things they have to do is to you know, stack the Supreme Courts of their countries with complete loyalists. And that's what they've been trying to do reasonably successfully. Because Trump didn't have that sort of master plan, he nominated Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, who again is, is a staunch conservative, but is not somebody who um, would willingly destroy the Constitution, I don't think. And so one of the hopes I had was that Trump would make those mistakes because he doesn't have a clear idea of where he wants to go. Um, to some degree, that's been borne out, but I, I think that at this point, he has already seen the limits on his power enough and is already at war with those institutions enough that the difference between him being an authoritarian by instinct or by ideology is rapidly slimming. It's rapidly approaching each other. Should we be concerned about the extent to which Donald Trump is attracting generals to play roles in his administration that have been traditionally held by civilians? I mean, we're looking at everything from the defense secretary who had to get special clearance because he'd been a general so recently to his current chief of staff, who's a former general. Is that a trend that should concern us? I mean, I think it should definitely concern us in one respect, which is that it shows the degree to which Trump is attracted to figures of authority who can command rather than having to build consensus in the way that democratic politicians usually do. And that closeness uh, that Trump has to not just Vladimir Putin in Russia, but to people like Duterte in the Philippines. And he just seems to be generally attracted to these authoritarian figures, these dictators. And in the same way, he prefers generals and their sort of demeanor and their manner to, to civilian leaders, and that should concern us in itself. It's, it's a worrying indication of, of what the president values. You know, I do think it's concerning. I mean, anywhere where you see the military become bad and mashed in the government, it's, it's a bad sign when you look in comparative perspective at other countries. That is, that is not where you want a democracy to go. Um, at the same time, you know, the U.S. military does have this deep tradition of respect for civilian leadership and of actually upholding constitutional values. And so in some ways, 
Um, I prefer seeing uh, figures like McMaster in the government as opposed to some of the more ideological figures like like Steve Bannon or Seb Gorka. So I'm sort of a little torn in that. I do think from you know a hundred yard perspective, it's 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 a worrying sign that that's where we are. But given some of the alternatives of who Trump might put in those positions, but otherwise those generals seem like the least bad out of a bad bunch. There was an interesting incident last week where Trump tweeted out a ban on, or a seeming ban on transgender people serving openly in the military. And then the military followed by saying that they essentially shrugged off his tweet saying, you know, we're just waiting for real orders with this, a tweet doesn't count, essentially. It seems like there's both a rapprochement of the military in Trump's administration and a kind of alienation and disaffection where the military is going out of its way in some ways not to recognize every every tweet and every every posture. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, look, in the functioning democracy, you want clear civilian supremacy, which means that um, elected politicians rather than generals get to call the shots as to what the military should do and what else should happen. That's a huge problem in countries in Latin America and elsewhere where the military has traditionally had you know, a large political role to play. And at the same time, you want you know, real faith in the Constitution and to make sure there's not really erratic policy that violates the rights of individuals. In this administration, we increasingly see a conflict between those two things, where ironically, the military is standing up for those constitutional values, for the rights of individuals, but they have to do that by being drawn to some degree into politics. So you sort of win one and you lose the other. And that, again, may be the best outcome considering the circumstances, but it's a pretty worrying place to be when you zoom out the picture. Definitely. There are some people who have been arguing that it's kind of worrisome, despite the fact, if you may like the outcome of the military dragging its feet on the trans ban, that the fact that they're deciding to pick and choose which communications from the president they're following could be worrisome in itself. Exactly. And my fear is that we're going to get to an even more extreme version of that. But if Trump does fire Mueller, if he does pardon himself, at some point, if he simply decides to disregard a court order, we may get to a real constitutional crisis where essentially, in order to be true to the constitution, the military has to disobey an order from the president. Now, under certain circumstances, if the order is illegal, that is the right thing for the military to do. But if we get to a stage where military leaders have to decide to disregard an order from a commander-in-chief, that is a very, very deep breach of civilian supremacy. And you don't want to start a political tradition of the military seeing itself in some way as a true guardian of the constitution uh, above the political leadership, the way in which it was long true in Turkey um, until the early 2000s. That is not a good situation to get into. And I think, depending on how things play out over the next years, it's, it's, it's at least not entirely unlikely that we might get to that stage. A few weeks ago, you wrote that uh, you felt like the constitutional showdown was becoming inevitable. Do you still feel that way? Yes. I mean, I think in some ways there's been some very encouraging news over the last days, but those news in themselves might make the children more likely. You know, Congress, uh, even some congressional Republicans have now um, made clear that they won't accept it if Trump attempts to fire Mueller. And so you could imagine Trump firing Mueller and Congress trying to reinstate him and uh, the president uh, trying to shut it down. I mean, my sense is that Trump at this point, feels that he has so much to lose from the investigation 
that he'll do whatever it takes to shut it down. Um, and that either means that other institutions yield to him and essentially uh, give up on their independence and let uh, Trump run roughshod over the most basic democratic norms, or that they will step up and actually race to the fight. And, and at that point, we will have a constitutional crisis. Procedurally, what would Trump have to do to remove Mueller? Uh, well, he would have to find somebody in the Department of Justice who is willing to fire Mueller on his behalf. So what that means in practice is much the same as Nixon did famously in the 1970s, which is to you know, fire Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General. Uh, at that point, he would instruct uh, the person below Jeff Sessions to fire Mueller on his behalf. That's, at this point, I believe, Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein would most likely say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, I'm not able to do that. Uh, and either tender his resignation or Trump would fire him and he'd sort of go down the chain of command until he finds somebody who is willing to say, yes, I'll do that for you. It's interesting. There have been a bunch of bipartisan initiatives in the Senate to introduce legislation that would put further strings on Trump's capacity to get rid of Mueller. Yeah. Do you think any of those have a good chance of becoming law? So, so, so this is one of the showdowns that we're headed towards. I very much hope so. I mean, it's encouraging to see at least two Republican senators who are not on the most moderate end. They are not your Lisa Murkowski's. They are not your Susan Collins's saying this is a red line for us and we're actually willing to put forward legislation of which the president clearly disapproves in order to rein him in. Um, so that's an encouraging sign. But it's very clear that the president will veto any such bill as long as he has a chance, as long as he believes that uh, that veto will win. So we need at least 18, 19 Republican senators to get on board with this bill. And we need a good number of Republican members of the House to get on board with this bill. Neither of that is going to be easy, but it is becoming possible. And the approval ratings for Trump play a big role here because they are going to determine how rank and file Republicans feel about this, how far they're willing to go in defying the president. Now, you know, people on Twitter and Facebook always share the sort of most extreme polls. And, uh, you know, I know that all of my friends or many of my friends always post, you know, cherry pick the one poll that shows Trump doing least well, because that's what we want to see. In fact, Trump's approval ratings have been relatively stagnant for the last months. In mid-May, uh, 538, had uh, his approval rating about 38.9%. And a few weeks ago, they had it at about 38.9%, 39% as well. But in the last couple of days, it's really taken a little hit, and it's now down to 37%. If it keeps sinking further than that, if it's below 33%, below 30%, um, then you're going to see a lot of Republicans try to move away from Donald Trump. And, and a law like this could, could pass, despite the supermajority rules it requires. I've noticed that the Senate also unanimously moved to block Trump from recess appointments during this upcoming recess, which would limit his ability to install someone other than Sessions as attorney general. That seems like a heartening development, too. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And, and of course, there was the Jeff Flake op-ed um, and the book that he's writing in which he, you know, for the first time is actually making a Republican case for why Trump is sort of ideologically unacceptable, politically unacceptable for the first time for, for a sitting legislator. So, so it does feel as though we may be approaching a breaking point between congressional Republicans and Donald Trump. For many, many months now, uh, for the better part of a year, Republicans have 
time and time again put party above country in, in a very disheartening way. And it's starting to look as though they may be uh, willing to put country above party at some point. We're not there yet. Um, we've been disappointed many times in the past, but there have been some quite encouraging signs in the last weeks. Could you just elaborate, sort of sketch out a scenario in which Trump defies a court order? What would then happen? Well, we've, we've never been there, <laughs> or at least we haven't been there in, in about two centuries. It is unclear. I mean, it depends a little bit on the nature of the court order and who is bound by it. But essentially, if it's a federal bureaucracy, but um, let's say that Trump somehow appropriates money in some unusual way to build the, the border wall, and the Supreme Court says, actually, sorry, you can't uh, do that. You know, it's you don't have a building permit, so you don't, you know, the money isn't correctly appropriated or whatever. You know, there would be a situation at some point where Trump gives an order to some wing of the federal government to do something. And the Supreme Court has clearly stated that they shouldn't do that. And a bunch of poor bureaucrats on the ground are going to have to make a decision whether to follow the direct order of the president or whether to follow what the clear interpretation of the Supreme Court ruling is. It's interesting that Trump has done such a bad job of packing federal agencies with loyalists. So many of those posts are unfilled still. Do you think that that would decrease his chances of prevailing in a standoff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it might. You know, the thing is, uh, people from the beginning have been, have been saying, you know, one of the reasons why we don't have to worry as much about Trump is that it's actually very difficult to get things done in, because you need to know how to do things. And, you know, you need to have expertise and experience in order to know how to do things. And, you know, I've always been skeptical of that because and while it may even take some expertise to do something at all, it doesn't take much expertise to break things. Um, and, and Trump's been breaking a lot of things. Um, but once he starts to actually want people in bureaucracy to carry things out for him, especially if there's a constitutional conflict and the courts are saying, no, 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 don't do that, his inability to have a loyalist in these positions would really matter. A loyalist presumably would side with Trump in those circumstances. And a career bureaucrat who's been there 20 years and who wants to be there another 20 years you know, might have a different calculation. And the first calculation is going to be what minimizes my chances of going to jail for defying a court order. And that may be disobeying the president rather than disobeying the Supreme Court. Yasha, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And now it's time for recommended reading. Hand-picked selections to help you come to grips with our bewildering political moment. In honor of the FBI's raid on former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort's house, we bring you a two-part explainer by Ken White, a former federal prosecutor who blogs at Pope Hat. Ken is not only informative, he's incredibly funny. I've bookmarked his essay, If a Bigfoot Hunter Doesn't Have His Reputation, What Does He Have?, to reread when I'm feeling sad, because it always cracks me up. Part 1 is called How Federal Grand Juries Work, and Part 2 is called We Interrupt This Grand Jury Law Splainer for a Search Warrant Law Splainer. Read these and you'll be able to impress your friends at cocktail parties with your professional strength legal knowledge. If you're not invited to a cocktail party, you might consider throwing one of your own just to give yourself the appropriate venue. Cheers.
Pitch is produced by Nora Hurley for Rewire Radio. Our executive producer is Mark Folletti. Our theme music is Dark Alliance, performed by Darcy James Argue's Secret Society. And I'm your host, Lindsay Beierstein. Tweet your suggestions, comments, and questions to at Beierstein, B-E-Y-E-R-S-T-E-I-N, on Twitter. See you next week. <laughs>